I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. I've been saying those words since I was his age. I didn't really know what they meant then. I knew it was important, that it was special. I loved being an American, but who knew what allegiance was? My idea of freedom was getting outside and playing as hard as I could. Now that I'm a dad, those words mean more than ever. I want my son to grow up strong in the land of the free. I want him to be as brave as his great-grandfather who fought for the freedom of his country. And I want him to use that liberty to do good and enjoy this blessed life we share. But I want more for him than just that, than just to love being an American. I want him to understand that this is his country, but it's not his home. Someone besides those brave soldiers died so that my son could be free. Free forever. Free from sin. Free to run the path God's called him to with everything he's got. My prayer is that my son will pledge his first allegiance to his Lord. And then learn to love his country while longing for his home. I think that's what freedom is for. As I was preparing to teach this week, I was looking through some videos, and, and we have access to a, not an extensive library, but it's a decent sized grouping of videos, and, and I just felt that this video tied in so well with what we're going to talk about this morning, and, and as I was sharing last night with the congregation, it wasn't until I had watched it with the congregation. You know, I had seen it a, a few times so that I, I really understood what it was talking about and that I would be reminded of that. But then last night, as I was standing up here watching the video with the, the rest of the congregation, it really began to, to almost overwhelm me because I started to think about my own kids. And being a parent changes everything. I mean, it changes just your outlook on life. It changes the, the way that you think about the choices that you're going to make and the example that you set. And, and I thought that this video really meant so much. Because despite what so many in the media and the general public believe, we should be proud to be Americans. 
I mean, we really should be proud to live in this country. That doesn't mean that this is a perfect nation. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have faults because it's governed by people that have faults and it's filled with a bunch of us who all have faults. It doesn't mean that it's perfect, not by any stretch of the imagination. It doesn't even mean that we're on the, the right trend. You know, right now, if you really are honest with yourself, we're on a downward trend in this country. So many of the things that are taking place, so much violence, the hatred, just the, the way the political system is set up, just all of these things that, that started out already imperfect but have continued to get worse. And yet we are still so blessed, so blessed and so privileged to live in this country. And one of the things that, that really just drives me up the wall, and it, I, I, I never served in the armed forces. I never served in the military in any capacity. But one of the things that, that I learned from a very early age, and it has just been reinforced, especially as I have grown up and, and gotten to know members who have served, is that one of the reasons that we, we salute the flag, one of the reasons that we stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, one of the reasons that we stand for the national anthem is not just our pride for this country, but it's a, a show of respect, of honor and thanks to those that serve. And so many times we hear about it, but it's something that we really need to take, take to heart and take to account. And to be reminded of the fact, it's a, such a simple phrase, but it's so important, that all gave some and some gave all. And that is one of the main reasons that we stand. Now, you want to protest, you want to do all these other things, you want to talk about all the things that need to change in America, I'm all for that. But you need to show respect, you need to show honor for those that have served and those that have died. It needs to start there. And then as that video continued on, just to, to think about that, starting from that perspective, and then he gets to the part where he says, I want my son to understand that there was one other who died for his freedom. And if we show that much honor and respect, and we should, for the men and women who have died, how much more should we show that respect for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? What a privilege we have, not just to live in this nation, but to worship freely in this nation. And that might be a freedom that we don't have for much longer. Who knows? But right now, we have that freedom. And what a joy, what a privilege it is. But even beyond that, what an immense joy and privilege it is to be part of the family of Christ, to be part of the kingdom of God, and to know that, that no matter how good or bad this world is, no matter how good or bad this country is, that it will not even come close to the perfection of all of eternity with Jesus Christ. That's what we look forward to. That's what we have. But one of the things that, that I think we all need to be reminded of is the fact that there is no perfect government here on the earth. You know, the title of this morning's message is Perfect Peace in Government with a question mark at the end. Can there really be perfect peace in government? And I would suggest to you that there really can't until Jesus comes to reign here on the earth for the millennial reign and then throughout all of eternity. And I would even go so far as to say that the closest thing that we will ever have to a perfect government before Jesus comes to reign on the earth will be the Antichrist himself. And we all know how that's going to turn out. So is that really where we should be placing our hope? Is that really where we should be looking for our comfort and for our peace? 
It doesn't mean that we're anarchists. It doesn't mean that we, we don't want to support the government. It doesn't mean that we, we shouldn't do everything that we can to make the government as good as it possibly can be and to make this world as good as it possibly can be. But that is not where our peace lies. It's not where our strength lies. It's not where our wisdom lies. Really, that's not where any of that comes from. It has to come from Jesus Christ. And so we're going to start this morning in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It's traditionally a, a passage that's read around Christmas time, but I think that it, it has so much more for us this morning. And we'll go ahead and read through these two verses. We'll pray, and then we'll, we'll just continue on. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning of verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again this morning desiring to be prepared to hear from you. That you would give us a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit, that you would grant to us your understanding and discernment, Lord, that we would be able to clearly hear your voice spoken to our hearts this morning. I pray that you would give me your words to speak and not my own, and, and we pray, Lord, that, that everything that is of you, that that would remain in our hearts and in our minds, and everything else would just fade into the background. We give you this time and all that we are, we ask and pray all these things. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So one of the things that I think happens too often for us as believers is that we can get caught up in everything else and lose sight of Jesus. And sometimes it's a catastrophic event. Sometimes it's, it's something really, really big. Sometimes it's on the other end of the spectrum, and it's something that's really, really awesome. Something great happened in our lives, and we lose sight of Jesus Christ. And sometimes, most often, I would suggest, it happens in the mundane. It happens in just the day-to-day -day grind, as we call it. Just life begins to squeeze out our reflection upon Jesus. It begins to squeeze out our devotional time. It begins to squeeze out the time that we spend in prayer and fellowship. Sometimes, as we've shared many times, sometimes it's actually doing things for God that squeezes God himself out of our lives. And it's important that we are always reminded of who Jesus is. And so I, I really, really love this passage. And, and it helps me, particularly at a time like this, in 2008, I very clearly remember the run-up to the presidential election and how concerned I was and, and almost to the point of, of just anxiety because of what would happen. How is this nation going to turn out? What's going to happen with the election? You know, what, what's the direction that we're going to take? And then you have all the doomsdayers, even within the church, who are talking about how it's very, very possible that the Antichrist might be the, the American president and all of these different things. And, and so you get so caught up in it and you get worked up. You get passionate. Maybe you get anxious. Maybe some of us don't even care. But, but for me, I was anxious. Didn't know what was going to happen. And then the election happened. And then 2012, I remember being even more anxious about it, more concerned about where we were headed, where we'd come from the last four years, and, and what might be the case for the next four. 
And I remember just being so almost overwhelmed with anxiety until God really hammered something home to me. And that was the understanding that the only perfect government is on the shoulders of Jesus. The only perfect government is on the shoulders of Jesus. That if I was looking at our government and our president or, or our elected officials, if I was looking at these people for salvation, not in a, a spiritual sense, but in a very real day-to-day -day physical sense, if I was looking to them for salvation, I was going to be sorely disappointed, regardless of who it was. Because they're all imperfect. They all have flaws, and they were all going to do things wrong. It's the same thing with, with spiritual leadership. Every single person that is involved in leadership in this church is imperfect. All of us mess up sometimes. All of us do things wrong. All of us make choices that we shouldn't have made. But we're looking to Jesus. And, and that perfect government, perfect leadership always has to be found on Jesus Christ. Our salvation, our foundation can only be him. And so our focus, therefore, has to be on Jesus. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that God's character and his attributes are such an important focus throughout the Bible. You know, it doesn't matter what book of the Bible you're in, you can clearly see the attributes of God. Some are highlighted in different places, but you can clearly see the attributes of God in every book of the Bible. But in this passage here, I think it gives us such a great encapsulated view of who God is. It's not an all-encompassing list, but this is such a great place to start. And so he says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. That is what we look forward to. That perfect government where it will be upon his shoulder, where he is the one that's ruling. And then it says, his name will be called Wonderful. Of all the places to start, he could have started with his glory. He could have started with his power, his might. As we're going to see in just a little bit, he talks about being mighty God, everlasting Father. And yet where he started was wonderful. You know, as we, we get closer to February and the Valentine's time of year and, and we do our annual couples dinner, what's the description that, that Pastor Tom always uses? Most of the time facetiously or sarcastically, but, you know, ladies, get Mr. Wonderful to take you out. Get Mr. Wonderful to do this. Because that's a, it's a beautiful word. It's a wonderful word wonderful. It means that you're awestruck. It means that, that it's just everything that you've wanted, it's all there. That you are speechless. You know, as you go through the Word of God, there's a word, a phrase really, it says, the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord, we've talked about how that isn't just like a, a cowering in fear, but that's really more accurately a reverential awe and respect to be awestruck, to be dumbfounded, to be speechless at the presence of God. And that's what that word wonderful conveys. And so he starts with that, just that who he is, just by being in his presence, that you're awestruck, that he is so wonderful. But then he continues on, and he says his name will be called Counselor, because all the wisdom from all the ages, throughout all of eternity, is found in him. To really stop and contemplate that, that the wisdom of all the ages is found in Jesus. That he's the one that's in control of all of that. 
that there will never be a situation that blows him away. There will never be a situation that, that takes him by surprise. That there will be no question that he can't answer. That there is no problem he can't solve. That he is wisdom embodied. That he's that perfect counselor. You know, we, we desire to be that as much as possible in the lives of those around us, particularly those of us who are parents. You desire to give wise counsel to your children, and yet we know we're imperfect. We know we're messed up. We know that there are times that we make mistakes, but God is perfect, and he is complete and perfect wisdom. And then the third thing, it says, mighty God. Again, of all the places that he could have started, that probably would have been the one that we would have gone with. You think about all of the, the famous leaders throughout history. And just to pick one, Alexander the Great. Like in his name, we call him the Great. Why was he considered so great? Why was he such a, a famous leader? Why would we call him Alexander the Great? It definitely has nothing to do with his character because as you read through the historical accounts, his character was extremely flawed. It wasn't because he was close to God, because he wasn't. So why do we call him the great? It was because of his might, because of the military conquests, because of all of the things that he did. And yet that's not where God started with the descriptions. We started with wonderful and counselor, and then he gets to mighty God. And that's not to downplay that because he is. He's all of these things. But I think that God really wanted us to understand him in a much better perspective than just his might. You go through the, the Greek mythologies, and, and what do you read about with the gods? The gods of the Greeks were, were callous, they were fickle, they were selfish, only concerned with, with making themselves happy. And God didn't want anyone to get confused with those false gods compared to the true God. And so he started with wonderful counselor, but then he gets to mighty God because that's who he is. And then the last one, everlasting father and prince of peace. Everlasting father. That means that he is part of that relationship for all of eternity. That once we are a part of his family, that that never ends. That you will never lose that privilege of being a son or a daughter once you have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Once your life has been changed and given over to God, once you are truly a part of the family, he is the everlasting father. That cannot be taken away. That relationship cannot be removed. And then the prince of peace. Not the prince of war, not the prince of valor, not the prince of might, not the prince of destruction, but the prince of peace. Because God incarnate, that Jesus Christ, he can walk into a room and command that room. We talk about that. We, we have that phrase, that euphemism that we use. And we talk about the fact that, that there are certain people that have such a charisma or such a passion that they can walk into a room and they command the room. Or they can get up in front of a, an audience and, and just command the, the presence, command the, the room itself. Now God does that to infinity and beyond. Because there's going to be a time that's prophesied where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he's going to reign here on the earth for a thousand years. And when he does that, he will not just command a room 
or an audience, but he will literally with his presence command the entire earth. I mean, what an awesome thing to think about that is. That that's the God that we serve. That's the one that we look to. And all of these things help us to take our eyes off of all of the stuff here, all of the junk that can get in the way, and get us back to focusing on Jesus Christ. Because that's where it's supposed to be. And he continues on in verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. He says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That once his government is established here on the earth, that there will be no end. That his government will actually extend beyond the earth. That it will extend throughout all of eternity. And then it says, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Again, just this, this focus on eternity, this focus on everlasting, about forever, that God is unending, completely perfect and unending. But then he ends it there, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And this same verse, Isaiah 9-7 in the New Living Translation says, His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. The passionate commitment. I love the way that that's translated in that version. The passionate commitment. Zeal is one of those words that, that you hear a lot. But we, we don't really get a good usage out of it. We don't really get a good understanding out of it because it's not a very commonplace word. But when you talk about passionate commitment, those are two words that you really start to, to grasp. You start to take hold of and you understand. And, and it's God's passion, his passionate commitment that will make this promise a reality. We've talked many times here about marriage and, and godly marriage and what that looks like. We've gone through the book of Ephesians and, and looked at all of the things that are in there. And we've hammered home the point that love in a marriage is so much more than the butterflies and the warm, fuzzy feelings. That love is so much more than just how you feel. That it has so much to do with the commitment that you make. Because there are going to be difficult times. It's one of the reasons that it's such a common thing in the vows. That for, for rich, for poor, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, you know, that, that it covers the gamut. So that even when it's unpleasant, that you still make that commitment. That that's part of love. Having a passionate commitment. And it's the same thing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. He is showing this passionate commitment towards us, and that's what he desires of us, that we would have a passionate commitment towards him. Last Sunday, I was sharing with, with someone, and we were talking about just being leaders, trying to, to encourage him in, in his walk with the Lord and, and in his leadership abilities and just trying to, to pour my, myself into him as much as possible. And one of the things that I was sharing with him is that, that there are going to be times where it's difficult to do what you're supposed to do. Where it is difficult to do the right thing and you just have to do it. You have to suck it up and you have to do it. And he said, but, but isn't that hypocritical? Isn't that fake? You know, everybody tells me that I'm fake, that I'm different when I'm here compared to when I'm other places. And he said, no, it's not fake. It's about being committed. It's not about being fake. It's about being committed. 
It's about understanding that even though it's a difficult thing to do, I'm, I'm sure that I'm, I'm not the only one here, that there have been moments, there have been moments in our lives where it has been difficult in our relationship with the Lord to get closer to the Lord. There are times where, where life gets in the way, where something happens, whatever it is, but there is something that happens, and it, it draws us away from God in such a way that it, it just becomes that much more difficult to spend time reading His Word. Maybe it's sleep. Maybe it's one of those things that, that you're just trying to spend time with God, and you, you just want to devote that time, and, and you just can't seem to keep your eyes open. I told him that it's in those times especially that I believe that God is honored and blessed by our commitment to him, by our passionate commitment to continue in the right things, to do the right things even though it's not something that's pleasant, maybe not even something that you want to do at that moment, but it's that passionate commitment that begins to bring about that tremendous fruit in our lives. And it's this same passionate commitment that God has towards us. And that is what is going to allow all of these promises to be fulfilled and to remain complete and true. It's God's passion that will make it a reality. And God is holy. God is completely perfect. He's the only one that can actually have fairness and justice in a government system. You know, this nation is founded upon all these great principles. It's founded as a nation, one nation indivisible under God. It's founded upon God, and yet it's still imperfect. We make wrong decisions. I mean, you think about your own life. How many wrong decisions have you made, even in the, the past week? For some of us, how many wrong decisions have you made since you woke up this morning? And you, you mean to tell me that, that you expect the Supreme Court justices to make perfect decisions every time? Just because it's their job doesn't mean that they're perfect at it. They still fail. The only perfect, fair, just governmental system will be the millennial reign and then for all of eternity in the presence of Jesus. Until that time, there's going to be flaws, there's going to be failures. But we still need to do everything we possibly can to make it as good as we possibly can get it. And so that brings us to Romans chapter 13, which really starts to challenge some of our tendencies really starts to challenge the way that we look at some of the things in our nation. Paul's writing to the church in Rome and he begins in verse 1 of chapter 13. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And so again, not to, to dwell on the point, but Paul is writing to the church in Rome at a time when the Romans are being ruled by the Caesars. And we don't have to, to do too much research or historical digging to be able to find out that these were pretty awful leaders. These were people that were godless. These were people that were just wicked. I mean, all the, the ways that you could describe them, wicked would probably be near the top of the list. 
And Paul is writing to the church in Rome about these people. And he says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Really, really let that sink in. That the authorities that exist have been appointed by God. Now you can get into the semantics of whether it was God's divine intervention, whether it was God's uh, permissive will, whether God allowed them to get there, or God specifically placed them there. But whatever way you want to describe it, God's in control, right? If he's not, then he's not God. Right? I mean, it, logically. If God is not in control, then he's not God. But we believe him to be who he says he is. We believe him to be perfect and in control. And so nothing happens outside of that control. So that means that every single leader that exists has been appointed or allowed, however you want to describe it, but it has been allowed or appointed by God himself. By God himself. I mean, you think about some of the terrible leaders, not just in this country, because we've had some, some real downers. When you look around the world and some of the, the horrible, horrible people that have been put into power, and yet God allowed that for a purpose. We don't always know those purposes. It's one of those things, somebody was talking about it the other day, that uh, he believed that, that there was going to be a time where, where when he died and he was going to get to heaven, that there was going to be an angel at the end of his bed, and he was going to say, okay, now you can ask me all those dumb questions that you've been thinking about. And I don't think that that's quite the way it's going to be. I, in fact, I know that's not the way it's going to be. But, but it says very clearly that, that there's a day when we are taken to heaven that we will know everything. You know, that we will understand. And until that day comes, I don't know how a man like Adolf Hitler could have been allowed to do what he did. I don't know. But God allowed it. He ordained it. But he continues on there in verse 2. So that's the first thing that we, we need to be mindful of the fact that God is certainly still in control and he's placed them there. But then he says in verse 2, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. He says that to resist the government would be to resist God himself. Now that does not include things that go against the word of God. Let me be clear about that. When it comes to decision-making time and the government tells you do this, and God says do this, you go with what God said. But if it doesn't go against the Word of God, if it doesn't go against what God has already clearly laid out for you, then this is what you go by. Because in His Word, He says, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. That's a difficult pill to swallow for many of us. Because there are so many things that happen and so many choices and decisions that are made by others for us, people that have been elected and people that have been put into office, that we disagree with. And yet it says that we are to be submitted to this government. That we are be, to be submitted to these people that have been placed in authority. And he goes on to say at the end of verse 2 that those who resist will bring judgment on themselves for rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. So he says not only do you need to submit but you need to do good. You need to do good. And if you have a problem fearing authority, Paul's suggesting 
that it might be a personal problem. Paul's suggesting that it might have something to do with what we've done. Not in every case, because we just talked about it. He's talking about the Caesars. You know, the, these were some of the people that, that were persecuting Christians, that would take them and kill them, that would make a mockery of them, that, that would put them against animals in a gladiator arena. So it, it doesn't mean that, that there was never a, an unjust reason that a ruler came down on someone. It doesn't mean that there, that there aren't evil people out there in positions of authority, including law enforcement. But it also means that most of them are not that way. And it also means that we are called to submit to that authority. You know, just to give you a, a very, very simple example, I used to have what many would call a lead foot when I would drive. I could very, very easily turn a four or five hour drive into two. And we're not talking figuratively. Like, I could really do that. And that's a problem. And, and the police thought it was a problem too. And they eventually caught up and then it wasn't something that I recognized as much of a problem, at least not as much as they did, until I was arrested and put in jail, had my license revoked. That is a very humbling experience. If that kind of stuff doesn't change you and doesn't make you learn from your mistakes, I really don't know what else will. And, and I was on the way to a wedding. I, it was for a good cause. I had taken my best friend's younger sister, who was still here in El Paso. She had to finish her final. And I was taking her as soon as she finished. And I was taking her so that she could be there on time. And I was literally one exit away from where I needed to be. And I was doing way too many miles. And I saw the trooper going the other way. And we got over the hill and I thought, praise God. I literally said, praise God. I don't even know what I was thinking. But I said, praise God. We got over the hill, and all of a sudden, he comes racing back, and he gets me. And that same feeling that I had that at that moment, just that sinking feeling, you know, your, your blood pressure goes up, your temperature rises, you know, you just, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. All of that stuff was coming all of that stuff still comes back, even though I don't speed. I try really hard not to speed anymore. But now, when I see the, the flashing lights and I hear the siren, all of those same feelings come back. Even though I am not doing anything wrong, all of those feelings come rising to the surface. Because of who I am and because of what I've done. doesn't mean that I was guilty at that moment, but it means that there was a time that I was guilty. And that's what he's talking about here. He says that, that they're not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Like if I had just never sped, and probably even more so, if I had never been arrested and put in jail, I probably wouldn't have that same fear. But I can be honest with you that I have been pulled over way too many times to not be unafraid. You know, it's been a long time since I've been pulled over. But still, I, I kid you not, if I see those lights, it just, it takes me like 10 minutes to just get everything back to normal because I am so afraid of my past, of my evil works. And so he says here, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. But then he continues on in verse 4 and he says, for he is God's minister to you for good. 
But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject or submitted, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so he goes through and he talks about pretty much everything that you could experience there. And he says that, that you need to be submitted and subject to that authority. And then he says that he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. That doesn't mean that he's perfect. It doesn't mean that he's doing the right thing all the time. But look through the word of God. See how many times the children of Israel were judged by God through the hand of some evil nation. That then God would later turn around and, and strike down and wipe out. But how many times did God use evil rulers and evil nations to correct his own children? And if God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, don't you think it might be possible that God still does the same thing nowadays? That sometimes it might even be an evil person that is being used to correct us, to bring us back onto the right path, the right place. But it says that God is still in complete and perfect control. That, that's the gist of this. To understand that, that God is in complete and perfect control despite the wickedness, despite the appearances, despite everything that you might think, that God is still in complete and perfect control. And if God is not concerned, and I can tell you for certain that he is not, then why should we be overly concerned about it? It should not be something that keeps you awake at night. It should not be something that dominates your thoughts when we talk about the presidential election or the elected officials or law enforcement or whatever it might be having to do with government and authority. These are not things that should keep you awake at night. These are just things to be concerned about. And there's a difference between being concerned, because I think we do need to be concerned. We need to be on guard. We need to be wary. But we don't need to be in fear. We don't need to be overly concerned to the point of, of anxiety about what's going to take place. And that leads us to something that I'm sure that most of you didn't even think we were going to get to today. But that is that I believe voting is not only important, but that I believe that it is a biblically mandated thing. I believe that it is not just important from a civic duty perspective, but I believe that the word of God is pretty clear about the fact that we need to get out and we need to do that. And I believe that, that within the church, by and large, we fall into four very distinct categories when it comes to voting. The first one is apathetic. The person that would say, I don't really care to vote because life will continue relatively unchanged, regardless of which person or party is elected. They really don't care because their life has really been the same. They haven't voted since, you know, 1930, and life has remained the same. So they're going to continue to not vote. That's the apathetic. The second one is the disenfranchised. The person that says, I don't vote because my vote doesn't really matter anyway. The rich and the powerful control the politicians, and besides that, one vote wouldn't matter either way in the grand scheme of things. The person that, that has just totally lost faith in the government entirely and completely, and I'm going to suggest to you that in effect has lost faith in God. 
the disenfranchised. The third one would be the impassioned. The person that says, I vote in every election, I study up on each of the candidates and propositions proposed because I believe that my voice, along with those of my peers, can truly impact the political landscape. And within that, that group, the impassioned voters, there are some that are zealous, that are passionately committed to being impassioned voters. And you've met them, and it's not a, an altogether bad thing, but you've met them. They're like a walking Wikipedia of political candidates. And you can come and you can ask them, hey, you know, I was thinking about this issue. How do they vote? And they can tell you, well, you know, when they were first elected into Congress, this is how they, they first voted. And, and they'll go through. They can tell you about the, the life history. They can tell you about what religion they are, how many kids they have, how long they've been married. They go through and they know everything about it. That's the impassioned voter. And then there's the fourth one, which I think happens to most of the ones that do vote. And that's the dutiful voter. The person that says, I vote because I know it is my Christian and civic duty to vote. Regardless of what great or small influence my vote has. Basically, the people on, on the positive and the negative side of it that vote because they feel like they have to. They vote because they have to. And some of the people that vote because they have to feel like it's pointless, but it's my, my right, it's my, my responsibility, and so I go do it. And then you have the positive side of that where the people that, that go and they, it's my duty and I want to do it. I want to do it. I want to see change. I want to, to make my voice heard. And, and I've already been very clear about it, but I, I believe that everyone needs to vote. And I believe that we are failing to live as Christ if we choose not to exercise that right and that responsibility. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, it says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. So when you take that in conjunction with what we just read in Romans chapter 13, I believe that it very clearly tells us that we need to vote. That is part of our, our right and responsibility. You know, you have a problem with the government the way it is? Well, you should do something about that. You need to vote. You need to make your voice heard. And if you are a citizen of this country, you need to do that heartily as to the Lord and not to men. What does that mean, heartily as to the Lord, not to men? That means to the best of your ability. That means taking advantage of every possible good work that you can and doing it not for a reward from men, not because you're going to see something happen in your life, not because you're going to see a direct result of it, but because you are receiving your reward from who? From the Lord. So if you are a citizen of this nation and you are a child of God, I would suggest to you that it is not only a right and a privilege, but it is your God-commanded, biblically mandated responsibility to vote. To do it to the best of your abilities as unto the Lord and not unto men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We serve the Lord. We don't serve just this nation. You know, I, I loved that part of, of the, the video that we watched. That he would be proud to be a, a part of this country. That, but that he would recognize that it's not his home. That our home is in heaven. 
but that while we're here, we need to be doing everything we possibly can to stem the tide of evil, to do everything we possibly can to prosper good works, and to bring the kingdom of God to as many people as we possibly can. And part of that includes being able to get out there and to vote. It's an important thing. And then to take it one step further, when we go back to Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, he says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. All of that to say that if we truly love our families, shouldn't we want to not only set an example, but to also let our voice be heard, in particular for those who don't have a say yet? I have four kids, and I really believe that that's it. I believe that we're done. But I have four kids, and four kids that, that the youngest is not going to be able to vote for 12 more years. There are a lot of things that can happen in 12 years. There is a lot of damage that can be done in 12 years. I need to be doing my very best, even if it is just one vote. I need to be doing my very best with that one vote to spark change. Not change like, like everybody has talked about for the last eight years, but change that would redirect this nation back to Jesus Christ back to the place that it was founded upon. And I need to be doing everything I can because I love my family, because I love my kids. And not as much, but I do love you guys too, and so I do it for you too. But, but we need to be doing these things because it is our biblically mandated responsibility that we do everything as unto the Lord heartily, there were some interesting statistics that, that I came across as I was preparing about the 2012 presidential election. Of all of the citizens, not just inside the church, but just in America, of all of the Americans that had the right to vote, that were registered, only 57.5% actually took advantage of that opportunity. And 57.5% of a nation this size, that's a lot of people. But 42.5% of a nation this size, that's a lot of people too. That means 42.5% of this country chose not to vote, not to do anything about it. And I would probably suggest to you that of that 42.5%, more than half of them are some of the loudest complainers about what's taking place in government. But if you choose not to vote, you lose your right to say anything because this was your opportunity. Of those 57.5% that did vote, 51% claimed to be Protestant or Christian. 25% claimed to be Catholic, 2% Mormon, 2% Jewish, 7% other, and 12% no religious affiliation. 51% claimed to be Protestant or Christian. Now, just in a very overly simplified manner, think about this logically. If 51% of those that voted truly were Christians. And every single one of those 51% were doing just like we talked about, doing it heartily as unto the Lord, praying for the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. Don't you think that all 51% would have voted the same? 
I mean, God, God wasn't going to tell me, okay, vote for this person and tell you, okay, vote for this person. If we are listening to God, God's going God's to be the same. He's going to tell us, look, this is the one that I want you to vote for, not because he's perfect or she's perfect, but because this is the, the best of the worst. This is the, the least awful option that you've got on the table. But that, if that 51% had all been listening to God and had sought the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit for how to vote, don't you think that that would have been the candidate elected? And yet you go through and you break down the, the demographics, and all 51% did not vote the same. They were actually almost split down the middle. So half of us were totally clueless on what God was trying to say. I mean, that, that's really what it what it's comes down to. And that's a very, very sad thing. It's an interesting thing to think about. But then the, the other part of it is that those that did not vote, the 42.5%, Obama received 29.3%, Romney 27%, others 1.2%, and 42% chose not to vote. So if you break down the 100% of the people that voted, and you give them, you know, the percentage by percentage, less than 30% voted for Obama, a little bit less than that voted for Romney, Barely over 1% voted for somebody else, and 42.5% chose not to vote. You know, again, just an overly simplified, logical thing. If all 42.5% of the non-voters voted and they voted for the same person, even if it was an other candidate, that candidate would have been president. It is such a problem. And it's a problem not just in the general population, but it's a problem inside the church. All of this comes to say that it is a civic duty from a political, statistical standpoint that your vote does matter, not by itself, but in conjunction with everybody else. And if you are one of those that chose not to vote, you need to start being one of those that chooses to vote. But also, more importantly, from a Christian viewpoint, listening to the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit to vote and to choose who God desires you to choose is tremendously important. And how do we get to that place? How do we get to that place where we are just in tune and we know exactly what it is that God wants us to do in that area of our lives? I believe that it's just like everything else, that it comes back to being in tune with God, and to putting on the armor of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. And that is such a common theme as you go through the exhortations that are given to us as believers. To do things heartily. To do things to the best of our ability. To do all to stand. To put on the full armor of God. God is so intent on completeness. He is so intent on completeness in our lives. He's complete. He desires us to be like him. And so he says to put on the whole armor of God. And I would suggest to you that this is not just for an emergency. 
situation. This is not just when somebody's died and you need to go and you need to, to share words of wisdom and to pray. It's not just for when somebody's sick or going through a really, really difficult time and you need to, to just be empowered to pray for this person, to bring about healing. It's not just for when the world has come crashing down. This is for the mundane. This is for the simple, the day-to-day. This is for everything, for every day, for every moment that we put on the full armor of God. And why do we need to do that? Because we know that Satan walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and that that is a constant 24-7 thing. He is not stopping from that, so we need to not stop from putting on the armor of God. And so he goes through and he says, stand therefore in verse 14, having girded your waist with truth. That's the first thing, that we stand upon the truth, we live for the truth, and we speak the truth. That we vote for the truth. It is so important that the truth is something that, that is just embodied in our lives. And God is so faithful to give it if we just ask. The next thing, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. To cover our hearts by doing good, by doing right. You know, we talked about the example about the siren and the lights in the rearview mirror. If I am guarding my heart with righteousness, guarding my heart with righteousness, by doing the right things, God is faithful to protect our hearts. The next thing in verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He is the prince of peace, and we share the gospel of peace. We share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We take him everywhere we go, and we share him with everyone we meet. And one of the ways that we can do that is by voicing that vote. The next thing, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The shield of faith. Not faith in yourself, not faith in someone else, not faith in this government, not faith in another government, faith in Jesus Christ. That is the shield that protects us from the fiery darts of the wicked one. And then in verse 17, to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So we take that helmet of salvation. That's where all of it actually began. When we came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when we gave our lives over to him, we take on this helmet of salvation to protect our minds. But then, we are not just defensive, we have also been given a weapon. We are offensive as well. And we have been given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And how can we use that except to read it? To let it become a part of our day-to-day lives, to, to be lived out in and through us. Not just to be spouted out, but to be lived out. And then he says, verse 18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains. That in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so he says to pray. Pray is such an important thing. And we don't just pray for ourselves. We don't just pray for our own wisdom. But we pray for the leaders of this nation. We pray for the leaders around the world. We pray that everyone that God has put into place would be drawn closer to him. If they already know him, that they would get closer. If they don't know him, that they would come closer to knowing him. We pray that God would continue to show his might, his power, his grace, his mercy, and his love, even in the midst of whoever might be in office. 
We pray for the leaders. We pray for the voters. We pray for the true church to rise up and to stand for the right things, the godly things. And we pray for the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit for every believer. And I love the fact that he ended there in verse 20. And he says that for this, that you would, that prayer would be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Paul was asking for prayer as he's in jail, as he's in prison. And we talked about how awful the prisons were back then. That as he's in prison, that God would give him boldness to continue to speak the truth, to rise up and to stand for the things of God. You know, another statistic that I came across from the 2012 election is that, that of the 100% of voters that voted that were polled, and, you know, we're not going to get into all of the statistical differences and, and whatnot, but it's close. It's a good representation. That of the 100% of those that voted, 95%, 95% were heterosexual. 5% were homosexual. Now, when you go out, you know, there was a big proposition a couple of years ago in California about things that, that involved the, the, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender agenda. It sounded like a lot more than 5% voted. To me it did. Maybe I'm wrong, but it sounded like they were a lot more vocal than 5%. They sounded a lot more vocal than the 51% that claimed to be Christian. We need to be vocal. We need to pray for boldness that we would be able to speak the truth, even if it meant being in chains, and even then to pray for more boldness that we would be able to continue in that. And then the last thing just to, to wrap it up here, closing out Romans chapter 13. And do this in verse 11, knowing the time. Then now is high time to wake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. We put on the armor of God. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We put on the armor of light and let us walk properly as in the day. Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. The end is near and the sledding is getting tougher. It is getting darker and dimmer day by day. And we know that that is not going to change. God has prophesied in his word that the world is just going to continue to get worse and worse until he returns for his church. But we've also been given the mandate, the command that we are supposed to stem the tide as much as possible, as long as possible, until he returns. And part of that is by making your voice heard. And one simple way that you can make your voice heard is to get out and to vote. And when you prepare to do that, be in prayer for who it is that God desires for us to vote for. And be in prayer for all of the candidates. Be in prayer for the leaders of this nation. And be in prayer for those that serve, whether in a military setting or in a law enforcement setting, because things are getting much more difficult for them as well. We need to be children of Christ. We need to be about our Father's business. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for, for your awesome might and power, and we thank you for your love. We thank you that you are wonderful. Just who you are, that you are wonderful. But even beyond that, we thank you that you are wonderful in your ways towards us. 
Yet beautiful are your thoughts towards your children. And so we pray this morning that, that you would help us to, to have that zeal, to have that passionate commitment in our relationship with you. That we would desire to do all things as unto you. That we would do them heartily to the best of our abilities. And we pray for the leading and guiding of your Holy Spirit. Not just when we think it's important, but all the time. That in everything we say, everything that we do, that we would be led and guided by your Holy Spirit, that you would receive glory, honor, and praise from our lives. I pray, Lord, for every single person here that, that you would continue to, to remind us to take up the full armor of God and to be prepared, having done all to stand in that day, moment by moment, day by day. We pray, Lord, that, that whatever it is that you have for this nation, whatever it is you have for this election, Lord, that that would be accomplished and that you would help the church, the true church, to be able to see clearly through all of that, to see your hand at work and to be consciously aware of your presence in our lives. So we give you all the praise, glory, and honor, and we ask and pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. If you all would please stand. There's going to be people available up front to pray with you. If God has laid anything upon your heart, Please take advantage of that, and please continue to pray for Pastor Charlie. He's on vacation right now, and just that, that God would give him rest and, and just to bring him back completely refreshed. We're going to go ahead and close by singing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved.